You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Tracy Brown. Tracy is an Essence and USA Today bestselling author whose work focuses on women who triumph despite adversity. A Staten Island native, Tracy grew up on the North Shore in public housing while her grandparents lived across the tracks in the suburbs. That duality most certainly influenced how she grew up. Tracy was acutely aware of her blackness and the fact that her family wasn't necessarily living a charmed life, but her grandfather provided a real example of what middle-class living looked like. Back then, Tracy had dreams of being an attorney, and she was well-read, thanks to her college-age sister mailing her boxes of books. By high school, English literature was her favorite subject, but when she became pregnant as a sophomore, it was her English lit teacher who told her she was going to be on welfare for the rest of her life. But Tracy beat the odds. She graduated on time and went off to college. And while she didn't finish, she found a number of jobs that she enjoyed and that helped her support her family. Eventually, she made her way to the legal billing department of a corporate law firm, and she made that a long-term career. But in 2003, something clicked. After attending a poetry slam where she recited a poem on a dare, someone in the audience mentioned that she should write a book. And despite never having taken even a creative writing course, Tracy went home that night and started working on her first novel. She sent out three chapters at a time to four different publishers. And with no agent, she got three offers in return. And with that, her writing career began. Since then, Tracy has released multiple books, including her latest release, Single Black Female, which is a Target Diverse Book Club pick. And needless to say, she has more stories to tell. So please enjoy. Tracy, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Thanks excited for to being talk here. with you today. I'm excited. As I mentioned before we replaced play, I've been knee deep in your latest release. So there's a lot to talk about there um, and many other things about yes. how you've gotten here to to be a, an author who's really killing the game and has built a beautiful life. Um, Thank you. From words and creativity. So before we get to all of that, though, we start every show the same. So I will ask you, who is Tracy Brown? OK, uh, Tracy Brown is a round the way girl from New York City, uh, Staten Island specifically. Um, I'm a writer and a visionary and a big dreamer. Those are good. Those are great things to ground this conversation. So let's take it back to Staten Island. As you know, a lot of focus has been on Staten Island uh, because of the Wu-Tang and American Saga show on Hulu, right? Mm -hmm. So there's all this focus now on sort of their origin story and life out in Staten Island. And I think a lot of us, myself included, outside of Wu-Tang, just sort of sat, saw Staten Island as that other borough, like over there, right? The Without world. <laughs> yes. the world sees it that way. Yeah. Yes, I will admit that, right? Like I, mm-hmm. all I knew was Wu Tang. That was right. it. Um, but there are, are many folks who grew up in this community and have come out of that and done amazing things. And in your case, are also writing about it now and grounding stories in that community. Yeah. So tell me about growing up and what was that like for you uh, as you know a child and a teen? Okay, Staten Island is a very um, interesting borough of the five it is the most racially divided um there's literally kind of a a mason dixon line which is the highway where on the north shore you have a good mix of ethnically diverse people and on the south shore it tends to be white italian russian you know white not really very diverse and so growing up there was always a, a sense of community on my side of the borough which was the north shore I grew up in Mariners Harbor, Staten Island. Shout out to the harbor. And I literally had an interesting uh, duality in my childhood. My grandparents uh, lived across the tracks, which was a suburban kind of atmosphere. And I grew up with my parents in the projects on the other side of the tracks. And so I was able to kind of, I think, get the best of both worlds. And that really informed who I became as a young person. Um, There are a lot of Tracy Browns and Amanda Gormans and Ava DuVernay's in every single inner city across this country, which is not always given the access and the opportunity to know that certain careers and uh, journeys are possible for us. 
So I certainly never envisioned myself as a writer. You know, I had dreams of being an attorney. I went to Catholic school up until eighth grade and then went to public school. And Staten Island is just really an interesting place to grow up in the sense that I was always aware of my blackness, not in a, I wouldn't say that I had any uh, specific uh, run-ins, racist run-ins, but there was always a, a know your place kind of feeling in the sparrow. And I try to bring that across in my writing because like other, for instance, John Grisham, whenever he writes, he, he seems to bring Memphis, Tennessee to life. And when you read books about New York, you see Brooklyn and Queens, the Bronx and all of that represented. But it's very seldom that you see Staten Island, specifically as you spoke to the black side of Staten Island, where the Wu-Tang is from. You don't really see that depicted. Most people's uh, uh, knowledge of Staten Island stops at Wu-Tang or the mob wives. <laughs> mm, correct. <laughs> and so my books are my attempt at sh shining a broader light on the borough at large. And there's a lot of fantastic talent from this borough. Hassan Johnson from The Wire, all of the Wu-Tang Clan, as you mentioned, Tristan Mack Wilds, the world-renowned actor, Michael Rainey Jr., and myself. So one of my big goals, like long-term goals, is to bring all of that to light and marry it all in one great way. So stay tuned for that. <laughs> That's great. So thinking about that duality of having your grandparents on the suburban side of the borough and then living in public housing with your parents, were you acutely aware or at what age did you become acutely aware of socioeconomic differences and status? I guess I was always aware of it, you know, because um, in the 80s in New York City in particular, crack took over in a way that I don't think anyone could have anticipated or predicted in any way. So when that happened, I was about, I would say, nine years old, which is a very young age. And so it, I was very aware of the fact that the area that I was calling home, where I resided, the projects was very much crime ridden. You know, there were crack vials in the hallway. You would see, I saw, even at a young age, how the neighborhood deteriorated. We used to have block parties. We had this thing called Harbor Day, which was like the day everybody came out to the big park and celebrated. And you would have, you know, DJs, the WBLS, the radio station would come out. And they had relay races for the kids with actual trophies. And, you know, they would, you could smell the food cooking and the break dancing and see the, the colors and the music. And all of that kind of became distorted once crack hit the hood. So um, I was always aware of the fact that poverty existed um, and that um, we weren't living the charmed life of so many others. Like, you know, you look on TV and I certainly identified more with good times than I did with the Jeffersons. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I was aware that my grandfather was just a few, a few, you know, across the tracks, literally. And that he was established, that he did have, uh, he was what you would consider middle class. He had a savings, he had a car, he owned his home, you know. And so that did give me a sense of, well, things are rough, but everything's going to be all right. You know, this is just, it just, it nuanced my childhood in the sense that I I was always uh, well-read, loved books. And um, my grandfather was well-traveled. I loved listening to his stories of traveling the world as a merchant marine. My grandfather was illiterate, never learned to mm -hmm. read or write. He was uh, the 13th of the, the last of 13 children born in his family in Marietta, Georgia, migrated to New York and really became a huge success. So that was always palpable to me, that you could do anything that if this sharecropper from Marietta, Georgia, who never learned to read or write, could own a home, several cars, be the patriarch of the family that we all came to, you know, in a bind, that anything was possible for me, you know? So I, I definitely believe that from early on, despite whatever surroundings there were. So having that vision, but being in this environment, how were you able to ward off outside influence, right? Because a lot of- <laughs> Let's not say that. I didn't ward off anything. In fact, um, because I was in private school, I went to Catholic school up until eighth grade. 
which is a very sheltered experience. You know, in Catholic yes. school, it's very structured. And if you miss a day, they call you, your house and they say, you know, Tracy wasn't in class today. Is everything okay? And so I was accustomed to that. When I got to high school in a public school environment in New York City, I hate to say it, at the time, in eight, I went to high school from 1989 to 1992. At that period, the academic uh, administrative staff was not very hands-on in the public school system. And once I realized you could cut class very easily, and as long as you beat your parents to the mailbox, you know, nobody knew— I was I cut class all the time and I became a teen parent. I had my daughter mm. at the age of 15. And that was a very pivotal moment in my life for obvious reasons. But in particular, because I was an excellent student. I always loved literature. I have three sisters, three older sisters. One of them is 12 years older than me. So when I was six, she was 18. She went off to college and she would send me boxes of books and challenged me that if I read every book in the box, she would come and take me to Pennsylvania. She went to the University of Pennsylvania for like a, a weekend. And that was like, you know, for a girl from New York City, like Pennsylvania was like Paris, you know? Yes. <laughs> so I, I took that challenge and I would devour these books. Sweet Valley High about two little twins from California. Ramona and Beezus, you know, little women about these, these women from Massachusetts and during the Civil War. Books about things that were so outside of what I was seeing day to day. But again, it, it allowed me to stretch my imagination and to envision things and stretch my vocabulary. And so by the time I got to high school, English literature was my favorite subject. And I had this teacher, a Black woman, always wore her hair in a bun. I won't say her name. She was my favorite teacher. I loved her class. She loved having me as a student. And when I became pregnant with my daughter and word got around school that, you know, Tracy's pregnant and she's only a sophomore. Can you believe it? You know, she said that I was going to be uh, she was disappointed in me. She told me that I had blown my chance and that I was going to be on welfare for the rest of my life in a statistic. And I might as well just pull up a, a seat on a project bench and get comfortable. Mm. I was so crushed by what she said because she was my favorite teacher and I really um, almost for a moment believed it. But then, you know, something in me was just like, I'm going to show her, you know, I don't care what it takes. I got to go to night school, summer school, sit up all night and study. And I did. I graduated on time with my class, you know, went off to college, didn't finish. But I went and I was able to at least say to myself that no one is going to define me or my pathway regardless of what it looks like on paper. And I think that's so, it, that's one of the things that I like to write about that I like to bring across in my characters. People in general make decisions. You get forks in the road, you know? And when I got pregnant with my daughter, I had an option of, was I going to be a teen parent statistic or was I going to, you know, be brave and take this chance and have my child? And I chose to do the latter. And it didn't um, cripple me in the way that, so many people would think, you know, it's really a matter of perspective. And so I try to apply that to my characters in books. So they might make some questionable decisions, but I like to look at why, what motivated it. You know, how can they maneuver themselves out of these tricky situations? <laughs> so first of all, shout out to the University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater as well. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yes. But cool. yeah, so but having that, right, having an older sister who is on that path and is supporting you from the time you're a little one to try yeah. to open your, your world to what's possible. Mm -hmm. And then being a great student and having this experience, what was that conversation like with your parents and your older siblings? Oh, it was wild. <laughs> it was wild. Um, my mother, I actually didn't have the conversation. I hid it. I hid my pregnancy, mm. everybody for several months. By the time it came out. I was five months pregnant. Like the, <laughs> the good thing, I guess, in the time was it was 89 going. Yeah, it was 1989. And it, it uh, grunge clothes were like in. <laughs> so everybody was wearing like baggy, baggy everything, you know, like the old TLC style. So I remember going to my dad and being like, you know, I, I need can I go in your closet and look for some of your shirts to wear to school? And he was like, uh, go ahead, you know, so he, he never thought anything of it. Um, and then when they did find out, um, it was a very volatile and, and 
crazy conversation. My mother was dead set against it. As a mother, now I understand because she was looking at it, not not just through the lens of, oh, your life is going to be ruined. You know, um, all your dreams might not come true now. But she was also looking at it through the lens of what are the people going to say? You know, when the neighbors find out, you know, how's that going to make us look? And I think my dad had those same feelings in the beginning, too. But I had a conversation with him and I said to him, I'm having this child. Like I I decided this is what I'm going to do. And he he told me his reservations. And then I said to him, well, what if Martin Luther King's mom had had gotten an abortion or, or Malcolm X's mom? You know, what if I'm having the next king or queen of the world, you know? And we, you know, we talked about it for a while. He got very quiet. And then he came to me. He said, you know, I can tell you're ready for this challenge, even though on paper it looks crazy. And I, it's going to sound crazy when I say this, but I got your back. If you're going to have this baby, then I, I got your back and I'll stand with you. So my parents became very divided over the issue. My dad and I bonded in ways that, you know, never changed. Like we, we just were cemented in that. And um, eventually my mother came around, you know, right before the baby was born. (laughs) But, you know, that's the thing about having like a well-read child. They're going to have opinions and thoughts and ideas that they can back up with evidentiary support. So, but you know what? I respect him so much, especially now that I'm a parent, because he was listening, you know, and that was such a lesson for me that even at that age that he felt that I had made an informed decision and that he trusted me enough to know that I I got this, you know, I can, if anybody can handle this, he said, you can handle this. And I, and you know, it helped me to rise up and be like, you know what I can. And then my grandfather being from the, you know, the South, he was born in 1913. So he just didn't understand what the big deal was. You know, he was like, (laughs) what's the big deal? It's not that serious. Like she didn't kill anybody, you know? Mm -hmm. So, The men in my family became the rocks for me. You know, my father and my grandfather really stood behind me. And yeah. So you power through, you get through high school, you decide to go to college. Now you mentioned you had this aspiration of being an, you know, an attorney at one point. I was going to be the female Johnny Cochran girl. (laughs) I had it all planned out. (laughs) Yes. So you had this whole plan. What switched? What made you say like, this ain't it. College is not it life. You know, by then I had a son as well, you know, so now I'm a mother of two. I'm 19 because my grandfather owns a home. I had an apartment upstairs from him, but still, you know, financially I was trying to figure things out and I lost my babysitter. So while I was in the middle of my second semester of my second year, um, they just dropped out on me, my, my babysitter. And so I was, I had to drop out of college And then I entered the workforce. It just became like, this is what, this is the obvious next step, you know? Because I didn't want to make that teacher who said that to me correct. So I was determined not to remain on public assistance for any lengthy period of time, you know? So it was important to me to get out there and start to work. And so I did that. My first job was as a daycare teacher. Favorite job I've ever had to this day besides being a writer. I love it. Really? Oh my God. I was so fulfilled. I, I, I um, worked with children ages two and a half to five years old and the com- children that age have such a fresh perspective on life. Like if you go to work with kids that age and you're still grumpy at the end of the day, like something is wrong with you. If you sing the wheels on the bus every morning, like, come on, it does. It goes round and round. Life goes round and round. You know, it's going to be all right. <laughs> Listen, I know several people who work with little ones and yeah. they don't have the perspective that you have. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on the age, I'm sure. If I was dealing with like some middle school kids or maybe even elementary at a certain age, I might feel differently. But that specific age group, I just, I would do it again in a heartbeat. Like when I, when I do like get old and like I can't do anything else, I'll probably like oversee some kind of daycare center for kids, you know, be like the director. <laughs> yes. So you're in this job that you actually love. Was there a part of you, though, that felt like, man, I left my dream behind. I'm not going to finish school. Were you grappling with that as well? Yeah. And I was afraid more than anything, you know, because when you can't see what's on the other side, 
you know, every day is a gamble. I felt like, you know, waking up, it's like, all right, let me just get through this day. The kids got to get to school. I got to put food on the table. You know, let me go to work. Let me do what I have to do. And that just became a cycle for many, many years. I went from working as a daycare teacher to working at uh, Easy Pass. I worked on Wall Street for a while. Um, and then I found a position that became my long-term career, which was legal billing. So I was mm. working in a corporate law firm, uh, rubbing elbows with the movers and the shakers. In some fashion, it was still fascinating, you know, to me that I was in this field. I was learning legalese, you know, and um, just just I felt like I was still somehow in the realm of where I wanted to be. So I, I did find fulfillment in that. But I should say that the reading that my sister got me passionate about as a child turned into a love of words. Like I just loved and was always respectful of the fact that words hold a lot of power and you could either tear someone all the way down or build them all the way up, depending on how you spoke to them and how you speak to yourself. So if you, if you wake up in the morning and tell yourself, you know, I'm worthless, you know, life's not worth living, then you approach the day that way. But if you wake up and say, you know what, clean slate, fresh start, today is not yesterday, it's a different mindset, words, you know. So um, writing was a passion of mine. I became like an essay writer, a poet, and a short story. I would write songs like all throughout my childhood. I was a diary writer, diary keeper. And then in 2003, while I was uh, working at the law firm as a legal biller, I, I went out with a friend of mine to a poetry slam. They had these like deaf poetry slam style uh, venues in New York City. And on a dare, I got up on stage and did a poem. I got a standing ovation, was shocked. And as I came off stage, this lady said to me, um, you're really good. You should write a book. And I swear it had never occurred to me. It was like one of those like light bulb moments. <laughs> That never occurred to me. So that is not how I expected this story to go no. at all. That somebody else made this suggestion that you should yeah. write a book. Yeah. Because again, growing up where I did, even with my grandfather and all the all the life that he had lived, you start to believe when teachers like that teacher are speaking to you and saying, well, you know, you just this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to be on welfare. You're going to be a statistic. As much as you battle against that, part of you internalizes that. And you start to believe that only what you see in your everyday, like, you know, on um, Sesame Street or Mr. Rogers, there was this like, these are the people in your neighborhood, you know? The yes. people in my neighborhood were like the bodega owner, the mailman, you know, a home health aide, you know, a security guard, like that. So I thought like, that's as far as, that's really as big as you can dream. Maybe a teacher, you know? Then when I got the job at the law firm, I was like, oh, well, wow. You know, well, I'm already doing a lot here, you know? So writing, I never met an author in my life at career day. It's like an astronaut. We know they exist. Somebody's doing it, but I don't know anybody that's doing that. You know, I can't right. say I know an astronaut. So somebody's writing, but I didn't know any writers. So it just didn't seem, especially not having a degree. I never got a college degree never having taken any real creative writing course, you know, aside from whatever was assigned to me in school. It just didn't seem like something I could do until that woman said it to me. And I was like, well, maybe, maybe I got a little talent at writing, you know? And I went home that night and started what became my first novel. So somebody like makes this suggestions to you. You had never thought about it before. No. And then you come home and start writing. So how did you conceptualize an idea? I decided to write about myself because I always felt like my story, if I ever tell it, and even what I did write was just a small microcosm of my life. Because if I were to tell it all, like that, I have had such a roller coaster wave of life that I just knew that I had something at least in the telling of being a teen mom. And so that's where I began. I began with this character named Kaya, who grew up in a, in a, uh, very much similar environment to my own. I fictionalized it a bit, you know, took a few of my childhood girlfriends and changed their names and <laughs> gave them, you know, some, some, you know, personality traits. And I wrote this book about these two teenagers who fall in love and become teen parents and all the, the drama that goes on around that. Um, and I sent it out. I didn't know where to begin. 
So I started to call like Penguin Books and, you know, Random House and all of those. And I found out that it's interesting um, that major publishers won't look at your work unless you're represented by an agent. Yes. And an agent won't necessarily take you as a client unless you've been published. So it's kind of like a kid fresh out of college with a degree and you got the degree, but no experience. And everybody won't give you a chance until you've got some experience. But how do you get experience if no one will hire you, you know? So I looked at some of the smaller, like uh, at the time, urban fiction was real popular. Uh, the Coldest Winter Ever. Yes. Dutch and True to the Game and all of those books were out. So I started looking at the backs of those books and seeing like who their publishers were. And I sent out like three chapters at a time to four different publications. And I got back three offers, one rejection. Um, and the rest was like history. I signed a deal and my writing career began. So, you know, you hear these stories of, of people saying, like, I, I wrote this book and books that have become wildly successful, but I've got umpteen rejections or, yeah. you know, I, I spent years trying to, to get on. Now, your first run out of the gate, only one rejection. One. One. And three offers. And again, blew my mind because no college degree, no formal training. You know, never been published before. But it again, I was just like, wow, this, you know, like this could happen. So I published my first novel, Black, with uh, Triple Crown Publications. And then my second novel, Dime Piece, with the same publication. Dime Piece became a bestseller, Essence Magazine, USA Today. And then the major publications came calling me. So while you're writing these books and having the success, are you still on a day job? Yeah. Okay, so you're, yeah. you're balancing both. Absolutely, because at, I'm a single mother at this point of three children, and I just always felt like I need the medical insurance, I need the steady. The thing about writing or any, cre I feel like any creative career is the money can be, it pours in today and then it's a drought for a year or two, you know, or months at a time, who knows, you know? So I couldn't gamble like that as a single mom of three. So I kept my day job, I I cranked out novels on the side and went on, I would take my vacation time to go on book tour. <laughs> so, you know, like corporate law, if anybody knows about that, no matter what role you're in, it's, it can be all consuming, right? They, yeah. they pay you well because they want your focus to be at that, at that yeah. place. And that place is strong personalities. It's a lot going on. And I think the struggle that a lot of creatives have or people who have aspirations to do something else by the time they get home. Yeah. There's nothing left in the tank. So how were you pushing yourself to crank out this material on top of having this, this day job? This is where I have to give up. And through all of it, I have to say, I give credit to God. None of this could have been possible without his grace and without his uh, pushing me and giving me the ability to do what I did. And now, in, now that I'm in my 40s, I started writing professionally when I was 29. And I think being younger than gave me, and I was excited by it. It really, I'm a Gemini too. So what I felt like was like during the day, I was kind of uh, Clark Kent and I was doing my billing work, you know? And then I would come home at night and have a glass of wine, light some candles, pull out my computer and, and write. And it was like using two sides of my brain, you know? I would sit up until the wee hours in the morning writing until I, and then go to sleep for three or four hours and go to work. I swear I couldn't do that now. Like... <laughs> But at the time, I just had this grace that for those several years, I wrote a book a year for like five or six straight years. And that I, is amazing. I, I can't even imagine while working a full time job and raising three kids. I couldn't imagine doing it at this age. So I'm grateful that I started at, at the time that I did. And you know what's so funny? We always talk about this black don't crack and, you know, all this other stuff. But I am realizing there is a very real difference in energy level in your 20s. Yes. Yeah, yes. when you get to those late thirties, forty, great, but you're tired. <laughs> I am learning to accept that. Like I don't have what I did back no, then. It, it is very I different. I did. <laughs> so, so these big offers start coming. Yeah, right. What are you feeling like at this point? I just mesmerized, like just shocked. You know. The good thing with working at the law firm was that I had partners that were friends of mine that I could say, could you look at this contract and tell me, you know, what, what I should be afraid of, what, what I should, you know, cut out. And many of those attorneys still remain friends of mine to this day. Um, I just was 
floored. And really, I saw it as an opportunity to show my children that you can do it. Like, you can do it. Even, even if things look bleak, you know, you can do it. And so I was constantly aware of them watching me, you know? So I tried to make the best decision that I could financially. And I wound up signing with St. Martin's Press in 2008. By then, I was two books in. And I had two written. So, um, and I've been with them ever since. So I founded agent Sarah Camilli. She and I have worked together for the, out of the 11 books that I've written, nine of them have been with Sarah. Mm. So, yeah. So, you know, and I, I love that you you brought up that right out the gate, went to college, but didn't finish. And right. that is important on the show for us to show that, A, we're not a monolith. Right. B, there are many paths to success, right? Absolutely. I think because of what we've accomplished as a people, mm-hmm. sometimes we can get caught in this narrative of like, graduate, go to school, you know, yeah. get a good job, what we consider to be a natural trajectory towards financial stability right. uh, and a successful career. And that's just not the case for everybody. No, no. I wish it were because mm-hmm. my dream was to go to Spelman. I wanted that life that I saw on a different world. Yes. I to hang out with Whitley and, and Dwayne and all of them, you know, but when I had my child, that just was not a realistic goal. You can't go away to college with a baby, you know, and leaving her behind was never part of my, I didn't even think about that. So then I, I had to make use of the schools that were in New York City, which not a bad place to be. People come from all over the world to go to school in New York, you know. So I went to John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Shout out to John Jay. Um, and I really, in the two years that I was there, year and a half, I discovered so much about myself. And about my blackness, because Staten Island is so culturally uh, lacking that I didn't have the full experience of what it is to be black, you know, growing up here, because you just don't have access to everything that you have in all the other boroughs. Brooklyn, you know, there's a there's a drumbeat. There's a sense there's you know, you, you see people of all different ethnicities blending together. And, and I didn't really have that experience until I went to school in Manhattan and started to really branch off. Mm. So you this experience that you've had as growing up in, in Staten Island, yeah. you brought that into your, your early work, you know, using your own personal story, but how did your writing process change as you get into book, you know, five, six, seven? I think in the beginning, I thought about writing in the way that I, I'm a reader first. So as a writer, I tried to approach it the same way I'm interested in reading. So when I read a book, I like for page one, uh, paragraph one to grab me. You know, so I was more focused on the entertainment value of the story for, I would say, books one through three Um, or maybe one and two. You know, then I realized that I have a platform that is uh, coveted. Someone someone said to me, you know, there are people who've studied for years and gotten degrees and PhDs and they've never written a book. Mm hmm. And and that hit me like and by then I had written two and, you know, one 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 in the stash. And I was like, wow, you know, well, then I should say something. It shouldn't just and which is interesting because I don't know that white writers think that mm. you know, when they sit down to write. I don't know that they say, well, let me say something on behalf of the whole race or speak to, you know, the experience of us as a whole. They just like, for instance, um. Friends, you know, a television show about about four people, you know, friends hanging out or whatever. I don't know that that would resonate as well with in an urban setting um, for several reasons. Um, And I don't know that I, I wasn't sure if I would be doing a disservice to just lightly write about something like that, you know. So then I, I decided that I had an opportunity to really uh, show us. The urban, the gritty, the ugly side of us, raw, but in a sympathetic way, so that the thug who's selling drugs on the block isn't this monster, this boogeyman. He's a boy who once dreamed of being a fireman. How, you know, because when I go to these career days and I talk to kids and I say, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? There are boys and girls. They're five and six years old. The boys never say, I want to be a drug dealer, a hustler, a pimp. The girls never say, you know, I want to be a trap queen. So how does that happen? You know, 
So I, when I started to create these characters by book three and four, I wanted to explain how does Born in White Lines get to the block? How does he become the kingpin in, in the neighborhood? What was his backstory? And then how does Jada become a crackhead? Like, where did that, where did her path divert? What, you know, and then when their paths cross, what does that look like? So, and it humanizes, I think, um, the story because a lot of, I think, urban fiction is sensationalized. Guns and drugs and, you know, gunplay and, and violence. But there's so much more to it than that. At least there was with the people I saw growing up, the guys I saw hustling and going to jail, the girls that I saw, you know, having babies by these guys, they didn't look like what I saw on TV and in the movies, you know, it wasn't that black and white. There was certainly more nuance to them. And so that's what I try to bring out. Yeah. And I mean, I'll tell you, when we start talking about like urban fiction, I will be honest with you. Like most of the time I'm like, Oh God, a lot like, of like, <laughs> yep. be- because it, it can be reduced, right, to, to something that's so simplistic. Yeah. Uh, and this sort of fictionalized idea of what that looks like. Right. That, you know, it does not resonate with someone like me. But right. at the same time, I was just having this conversation at the hair salon yesterday. <laughs> there are all of us, no matter how far you are in your career or, uh, you know, what, you, what education you have. I know very few Black people who don't have some connection to the themes that you see in, in these books, right? We, we all do. If it's a cousin or, you know, a, a brother-in-law, it's, it, there's something, it, you, there's some connection. I, at least in my experience, mine too. Exactly. So you would think, right, that like these books could have a lot more depth. And, yeah. and, and oftentimes, you know, they sell with sort of an overly simplistic view and descriptor of yeah. these things, but that is what, I noticed in your latest release, which we're going to we're going to talk about certain things in here. I understand. Right. I I know the story of it's not my story personally, but I know the story of my parents story. Right. When you have one 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 party who's incarcerated and expecting the other party to ride out with that. Right. And and ride and do that bid with them. I know people like that right now. So, you know, those things, there's a way to talk about it. In, in a more complex story. I think so. Right. Yeah. That it takes. And this is why I struggle with the title urban, because right. when Total. you say it, people have this expectation of what they think it is. Right. They, they attach urban with like this, you know, this thing that's not really well thought out and well developed. And dare I say rightfully so, because mm. as an avid reader, I started to see laziness in the plot in the characters. The coldest winter ever to me is one of the greatest works of fiction, period. Like you could take the word urban out of it and you could set that sucker right up there next to A Tale of Two Cities. And it's mm-hmm. it's excellent in its depiction of this particular time, this particular place. You can smell it. You can see it. It comes alive for you. Um, but then after that became so popular, people just started to look at that as the formula. You get a, a big drug dealer. You get a hot girl, you throw some violence in there and you got a bestseller. And it, it worked for a long time until, but readers are not, they're not dumb. You know, eventually they catch on and they want substance. I know I do as a reader. And so again, once I realized the platform that I had and the responsibility that I had to, it was like, I saw Tupac do an interview one time where he said um, that he was a reporter in the hood. And this was his report, his songs, his, his lyrics, his life was his report. And I said to myself, well, then what is your report? You know, what do you have to say? And, and that has informed my book since then. So I tried to veer away from sex just for sensational purposes or violence where it doesn't fit. And instead of focusing on those things, it's there. But it's so much more about the story, about the characters, about the family and how everyone's affected by the decisions of one person. So thinking about the work that you've done and you put and you've put into your books, but that really early success that you had and, you know, hitting having a bestseller very early on in the process. Now, being with St. Martin's Press over time, did you feel more pressure like it's one thing to write and there's no expectations, right? In the beginning, you're just writing. Like I'm a creative, <laughs> I'm gonna put this out there and see what happens. Now when you have an agent behind you, oh, yeah. you have a publisher, there's editors involved. 
Did that change your ability to kind of let the story flow freely? Sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. Absolutely. You can feel those pressures of, you know, the, the book is due on this day and, you know, have, have I gotten it all in there? Absolutely. And then when you have the, the to me, the book that has gotten them remains the bestseller of mine to this day is White Lines, which was my fourth novel. I'm on book 11. There's always the pressure, I guess, to kind of match or, you know, top, God forbid, you know, that. But um, I just try to allow each story to be its own thing you know, and not look at it in any way to compare one thing to another. You know, this book, Single Black Female, is special for its own reason, you know, and White Lines is special for its own reason, and they can't compare to one another. It's just two stories that have come out of me. And so each time I try to approach it as an opportunity to create new characters and say something fresh. So you mentioned Single Black Female. We're going to get this. On camera, for those who watch the the video version of this, (laughs) I have my copy here. And I also mentioned I have my my Audible one as well. Thank you. So this is a Target Diverse Book Club pick. Yes. So I want to get into how that came about. But before we do, how did this story come about? Very, very, it ties right into what we were talking about. Mm -hmm. I started out wanting to write an urban sex in the city about four Black women who had achieved success in their career um, like the friends I have, you know, I'm 47 years old. My girlfriends and I, you know, when we go out, we, you know, there's nobody's looking at the price on the menu. You know, when we go shoe shopping, it, it's a situation, you know, and all of us have achieved success in our career on, you know, in different ways. And so I wanted to write about these women kind of like sex in the city and what their love lives look like. And then um, when I started writing it, it was probably early 2020. Or, or late 2019, and then the pandemic hit. Um, I went through a little bit of writer's block, if that's a thing. And then I started watching TV and I saw the George Floyd murder playing on repeat and Breonna Taylor case, all these, you know, the Black Lives Matter uh, protesters out there. And a lot of my uh, friends from other ethnicities started to reach out and have really deep, meaningful conversations for the first time. And I realized that maybe the world was ready for a deeper conversation on race and that this book could be an opportunity for me to show Black women in a way that people have never seen us before. So like, I can only, uh, just as an example, uh, Waiting to Exhale was about four successful Black women in their love lives, you know? And, and it was great at the t- at its time. But this time period just felt like that book couldn't just be that. It needed to be something a little deeper and more layered about if I'm a Black woman who has achieved success, do I feel like I'm leaving certain relatives or friends behind? Um, am I doing that or does it just appear that way? You know, and if I date outside of my race, am I selling out? You know, or if I grew up um, around uh, guys who were in the drug game and now I'm with a law enforcement officer, does that mean, you know, I've switched sides, I've assimilated, you know, or if I'm a black woman who twerks unapologetically on Instagram and, you know, drop drops it like it's hot on the red carpet. Am I playing into the stereotype of what they say black women are? So I I. The characters just became way more nuanced and they turned into Ivy, Coco, Deja and Nikki and single black female. So, you know, and you brought up a lot of the things that I sort of had running through my mind as I'm reading this book. And I will tell you, I don't read a lot of urban fiction. Right. right. For the reasons that we talked about. Mm-hmm. But I, I, without giving too much away, away, because we want people to go out and, and yes. buy and download this book. Yes. But I definitely had this moment of like. What what does happen when you've benefited from somebody's choices? Right. Right. That right. are not legal. Right. But you yourself, they've invested in you and helped you to create the life that you have now on the yes. quote unquote straight and narrow. And now they're paying the price for their choices, the choices that they've made, and you're still reaping the benefits. Exactly. How do you reconcile that? And I think this book really asks a, a lot of <laughs> pertinent questions. Thank you. Uh, for, for those, you know, who have experience these things. And even if it's not, say, dealing with the criminal justice system versus, you know, this life as a professional, it is the socioeconomic advancement, 
right? Uh, you are now in a place where you've achieved success. You've moved into a different neighborhood. Right. And how do you and how do you address those who feel like you've changed? Yeah. Or or feel like you're now out of touch or you're pretending to be something that you you're exactly. Not. And how do you deal with your own questions around like, who am I? Am I playing right. a role for success? Am I playing it safe? Um, and I think those are important themes that 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 do come out in this work, in your latest work here. And, and also, I'm very impressed that you're talking about writer's block in, in 2020 and this book is out now. And, you know, <laughs> so I'm like, that's crazy because who's writing, who's writing books that quickly? But um, then that's the that's the positive side of deadlines is that as a creative, if you're not careful, you'll take five years to put out a work. But your editor and your publisher in your ear saying, hello, you know, it does help. It does help motivate you to push past the block. And what I think writer's block is a lot of times, um, I think it's a myth. That's why I put it in quotes. Like, I don't know that it's really a thing. I think it's a it's a um, it's an opportunity for you to switch the environment you're you're creating from. So if I'm having writer's block sitting in the house, if I go sit in the park and sit under a tree, you know, watch the leaves fall and listen to a certain, put myself in a certain mind frame, maybe, you know, things will flow forth. And for me, it was literally seeing uh, the racial divide play out on television. And again, being from Staten Island and it being so racially divided, out of the five boroughs in New York City, it's the one that voted for Trump. Mm. And you can see in this borough, Trump signs on lawns during the election. You know, with the, the whole rest of the country is recognizing, you know, the madness that's going on. It was just so racially divided here. And it, it allowed me to, to because the book is set in Staten Island, to show how those worlds would collide here. So I'm, you know, reading the work, or in my case, listening to the work uh, in, in the audio book. But now I'm creating visions in my mind about what these characters look like, wanting to see it on a screen, right? How yeah. would this play out in television? So before, you know, we, we press record here, we were talking about, the works that have come out with four uh, four protagonists, black female, you know, black uh, female protagonists, mm-hmm. and telling these stories and how <laughs> it it has created a lot of chatter yeah. online um, yeah. on social media, etc. And it a couple of different criticisms have been born out of it. Right, one is why can't we have stories of different forces being told at the same time? Why you know why does it have to be one Great. after another? But also people writing off, summarily writing off works on television or in film that that don't immediately resonate with them. Yeah. So, you know, we have Run the World, we have Harlem, these shows that have come out and uh, to some buzz. Mm-hmm. And you hear this, like, people on, say, Black Twitter, like, this, th- I can't relate to this. So right. they're automatically writing it off as this is not good work. Right. How do you feel about, let's start with the whole there's not too many stories that can coexist of black women on television, despite the fact that we have 83 different streaming services now and many right. platforms. How do you feel about that? I think it's silly because there's no four groups of any people that are the same. So I could be telling the story like Tyler does with sisters on BET. It's a whole different story from what Issa Rae is doing with Insecure. They're totally, totally different things. And to say that they can't exist at once is... I think uh, indicative of the problem with writers of color having opportunities. You know, I think that they absolutely can coexist and should. There are so many different stories to be told. You know, um, what was the second part? Yeah. So you know, this idea that if something doesn't immediately resonate with the black oh, audience, that. then it's not good, right? So how do you keep yourself grounded when obviously, like, you have a publisher and you have people who want to see you and quote unquote, need to see you succeed, right? For financial reasons, have invested right. in you and you want to succeed. But against this backdrop of this idea that like, if one black person doesn't get it or one yeah. subset, it's, it's not a good art, work of art. How do you keep yourself grounded in the midst of that level yeah. of criticism? Right. Well, everything isn't for everybody, you know? So um, I try to remember that. That's that's key to, to keep in mind. But at the same time, um, I think that, we are often our own worst critics in the sense that if if I'm writing about a hustler and an addict and their love affair, maybe that doesn't resonate with you. But then you're telling me that the vampires in Twilight did because that's outside of your normal, you know, every day. So 
really what is the issue? Is it that it doesn't resonate or you don't want to give it a chance, you know? Mm. Because I think if, it, for instance, I, I hear a lot in um, more educated circles of literature that the issue with urban fiction is that it's only showing a specific uh, side of us. And the same could be said for the mom movies that come out. You know, how many casinos and Goodfellas, et cetera. But there's a, there's, there's a story to be told there. These are different characters. And this is a real thing that exists in the world. So to not tell those stories, to me, is almost um, irresponsible. So I, I try to alleviate the pressure on myself by just knowing that if the whole world is not my audience, I do have an audience who is interested in what I have to say, and that someone will connect with what these characters are about if I ground them in real people and in reality, which is, you know, the goal each time. And I think what's important, you know, to your your point about vampires and stuff and all of that, even with, with, with respect to romance, and I think there should be opportunity for what they call suspension of disbelief, right? Yeah. We have a, a hundred rom-coms that come out with people right. who don't look like us, right? They're swept off their feet into this amazing <laughs> relationship. I'm like, let us have an opportunity to, to be to decompress in that way, like and and show what love can look like for right. us as Black women. I don't um, know that we have permission to do that, right? I'm starting to see it though. I saw it a little bit with Lovecraft Country, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, sci-fi and uh, drama collided in a way for Black people that I haven't really seen done a lot. Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates with The Water Dancer. You know, we're pushing the boundaries a little bit and the readers are going with it as long as it's done well, you know? And that's all That's all I think we ask as writers is to give each work a chance and a fresh perspective and not paint us all with the same broad brush. Absolutely. So how did this Target Diverse Book Club pick come about? Okay, well... Again, I think America was ready to have the conversation and the topic, the subject matter of these women and how um, one racial profiling incident is the catalyst for so much action in the book. Um, I think that they chose it as their diverse book club pick of the month in an effort to get the conversation going among their diverse audience of readers, you know, and I will say that it is a joy for me to discuss single black female with white readers who are interested and intrigued and learning about, you know, what it is that this book is about, what they have, what, what I have to say in it. And it's an opportunity for us to have some really, you know, I don't think they're difficult conversations. Once, once the ice is broken, you know, that my experience as a black woman is just not the same as everyone else's, you know, that while I have success in my career and I can go to a cocktail party with you, I may have an incarcerated relative or someone who just came home from prison or, you know, my my son and, and his father may not be in his life for whatever reason. Or, you know, my past may have looked a lot more colorful than I appear right now. But, you know, it's still as long it's it's about who we are as human beings and how these women show up in the world. And about the decisions they make in an effort to find happiness. Because I think the American dream for Black women isn't the same as it is for everyone else. For instance, Ivy Donovan, one of the characters in the book, has achieved financial success, albeit at the uh, with the assistance of her incarcerated husband, but she's in an affluent neighborhood. She's in a very uh, uh, promising career. Her children are, you know, they have Uh, promising futures, but she's not accepted into this uh, predominantly white neighborhood or embraced by her neighbors. And I think that's regardless of whether the incarceration part is something you can identify with. You can identify with what it feels like to move into a, a, a block where you might not be, you know, that welcome or, you know, have that many people in the area that look like you. Or I'm making this money and this person that I'm interested in is not. Right. right. There's, right. there's something there to yeah. to latch on to and that will resonate with folks for sure. And then that's the beauty of a well-written book. Right. Thanks. That's not diluted. And just about this really <laughs> simple plot line. I just want to keep reiterating that because <laughs> it's a lot of bad uh, books out here. I just want to yes. say. Yes, um, there are. 
Yeah, but you really answered my next question in that, do you welcome white, white readers? I know some some creatives can feel like I wrote this work for us, for us, by us. I don't want right. someone taking a voyeuristic view okay. who is not a part of this community. But it seems as though you welcome them reading the work and the conversations that can be born out of that. Absolutely. Because I again, because it's not written in a sensationalized fashion, this is not just drama for drama. I think there's depth to the characters in, in each of the works and that if they read it, then a conversation can be had. For instance, White Lines deals with cocaine addiction. That doesn't have any race associated with that. Everyone across the board has dealt with that. This just happens to be a story that's uh, set in a black environment. But there are white characters, too, because it's not it's not a thing that's just exclusive to any one group. So regardless of what the characters look like, I could read an Amy Tan book that's set in Asia. And none of the characters look like me, but their experience feels like mine, you know, and I can identify with that. So I think I, my goal is to get us out of and to and to your point, I don't like the label urban fiction either. Are they urban characters? Yes, but it's fiction. It's fiction set in an urban setting. Do we have suburban fiction? Right. I don't see a suburban fiction set. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it should just be fiction to me. And by putting urban on it, it limits the audience. I think that white people will look at that and say, "Well, then that's not for me." When it could be, it, it could be a great conversation starter if we could just stop dividing ourselves into separate groups and just allow the work to speak for itself. Yes. So before we get to your aspirations for the next chapter of your career, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Oh, every day. <laughs> a time where I had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Um, that's a really good question. And I feel, I know I should have been prepared for that, but, um, I would say the day that the teacher who I won't name said to me that I was going to be a statistic for the rest of my life, you know, um, I certainly didn't get up that day and go into school thinking, you know, this is going to, I'm going to hear some life changing words today. Um, and I think I had an option when it was said. She said it right to my face, which I thought was real bold. And um, wow, like it, it just it floored me. Um, but I had an option in that moment to either take what she said as gospel or to prove her wrong. And I think that that decision to say, I'll show you, was an extraordinary decision. I didn't realize it in the moment. But looking back on it now, I know that there was something in me at that young age there was some fire and some fight in me that I think was extraordinary without me realizing it. Did you ever think about sending her a case of books? <laughs> she since passed away. Okay. I did, I did get the opportunity. Um, after I got married and um, I, I felt like I had uh, kind of, I was on the path to not being what she said I would be. I did get to go back to the school and speak with her. And one of the things she said to me was that she said that in order to, to light a fire under me, you know, I don't know that that's true, but um, it worked whether she meant it that way or not. It definitely, that it definitely uh, hit its mark. Mm. Okay. So we've talked about these shows that have come out, the the work of black creators that are, that are being promoted on streaming services, network television, all of that. Right. To the extent you can discuss it, what are your goals for the next chapter uh, okay. of your career as a writer? Do you want to be on television? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I want to be in television. I want to be on the big screen. And, and I'm certainly working towards that goal. Um, I'm in the process of adapting a couple of my titles to film and TV projects, which is it's what's exciting about it is that at this age, I'm starting a whole new uh, phase of my career because uh Novel writing is very, uh, you can, you get to describe emotions. You know, if a character's staring at a, out of a window, I get to tell you what they're thinking, what happened earlier that day, you know, in their mind. But writing for television and film, you have to show it. And it's about the light coming through the window. Is it day or night? Is it an interior or exterior shot? 
And that whole process is fascinating to me, being on set and, you know, just seeing how the whole process evolves. And as a creative, to have new layers added to your career at this stage is just like a thrill. So I'm very excited. So our regular listeners are going to kill me if I don't ask this question. (laughs) Um, Did you have a moment where you're like, I don't have to work anymore at the nine to five? Sure. Okay, because I know they're going to want to know, Okay, is she in this full time? Is she still working and juggling? But I do still juggle. I'm a hustler. There was a (laughs) point where I did give up my nine to five full, you know, and just go into writing full time. And you know what I found is that it's for me and I'm not going to say that my experience is the same for for anyone else. But for me, I felt more pressure than ever because now the full 24 hours is available for me to write. So if I'm in Target. Or, you know, I'm getting a massage or something. Or I'm, I'm watching TV. I felt guilt around it. Like, I should be giving eight hours of my time to this thing the same way that I was giving it to a, a legal career. But creativity doesn't flow like that. You can't sit and say, all right, I'm going to write for eight hours. I'm going to bust out five chapters. If you can, that's great. For me, it doesn't always flow like that. So I found myself going back, at least in a part-time capacity. So even now, there are still attorneys that I do some some legal billing for right now, you know, and I, but the writing is my main focus. And when people ask me what my career is, I'm a writer. That's just, you know, that's a side hustle that I do, you know, to keep some medical insurance and all like that kind of thing, you know. Listen, we're not mad at that. When the checks are correct, I will be 100%. (laughs) But I'm glad you brought that up because people, a lot of people will hear your story and be like, oh, she has a publisher. She's dropped all these books. You were interviewed by Nick Cannon. Like she's made it. She doesn't have to work. And these are choices that have to be made sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Everybody's situation is different. And again, I think that because for so many years of my career, probably for the first uh, seven or eight books, that money was not just supporting me or, or being saved. That was for college tuition for my son. And, you know, my other son wanted to go into music. I put him through, you know, recording academy school, you know, money is a constant flow. So now I'm in a position where I'm starting to get my feet on solid ground and starting to say, okay, well now I can start to really make decisions just based off of me and what I need. And I can take certain chances now, which is again, very exciting. But I think it's very important for people to um, understand the reality of it. People see you on TV. I remember when I was growing up in the projects, there was a kid in my neighborhood who got a commercial. He was like, he he did like a, a commercial for, I want to say it was Kool-Aid. And um, then he did something with Michael Jackson and we all saw him and we were like, oh, my God, he's rich. We saw him on on TV. He's rich. And then I saw him in the corner store. I was like, what are you doing? Just like visiting, visiting family and stuff. He's like, no, I live here. Like, you know, I just that was I got a job. That doesn't mean that, you know, I'm I'm over the top. So I think a lot of times people will see you reach certain levels of uh of success and think, oh, well then, you know, she's over the moon, but I can, I'll be the first to tell you when <laughs> artists still struggle. <laughs> Listen, I, I hear you. So how many more novels are in that mind of yours right now? Oh God, I hope I can write until I can't anymore. And then when I'm like senile and blind, I hope that my granddaughters will pick up the mantle, you know, and, and help me do it. I just, I love it. And I mean, if you can get paid to do what you love, it's like it doesn't feel like work. And even though the deadlines are something that I still struggle with, the fact of the matter is I get to create imaginary friends and share them with the world and then have conversations with people about them. And I mean, like, what's better than that? That's great. I think that's a great place to end on. Thank you. <laughs> so tell people where they can find you online. All right. You can find me on Instagram. I'm author Tracy Brown uh, on Twitter. It's I am Tracy Brown. Um, and I'm actually on TikTok now. I'm trying to do this thing called Book Talk, where I discuss my books in depth with the readers. One thing I miss now that we're in this digital age, I'm so glad to see you with a paperback and your Audible, because in the in the age of digital, a lot of bookstores have closed. Mm-hmm. And so now I think we're left with like Barnes and Noble nationwide and a few, you know, uh, smaller booksellers. Um Target and uh, Walmart and all of those. 
But I miss going on book tour because we used to get the opportunity to talk with the readers about, you know, the characters and, and what resonated with them and what made them upset. And so TikTok has become my venue to do that. So uh, you can find me on TikTok, author Tracy Brown as well. Love it. Love it. I'm all about the conversation. As you can see, yes. we're about uh, dip, uh, getting in deep and really <laughs> uncovering where somebody's mind is and yes. really what drove them to write these characters. So I'm so happy y'all to go check you out on. Now, I will admit, I just watch on TikTok. I have not joined the world as a creator on there. <laughs> That's so all I'm, <laughs> I'm curious to see what you have done. I'm going to go check that out. On sure. there, and I'm going to be adding more in the in the weeks to come. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you for joining me today and doing this interview. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate this. And to our listeners, listen, you know, I don't show a lot of books on this show. So if I'm showing it, that means you should go out and get it. Yes, Single Black Female, in addition to all of the other works that Tracy has released, go check them out, support her work as well. We need writers. We need our stories to be told, no matter yes. how complex and different and varied they are. There is room for all of us. Go follow her on socials. If you've enjoyed this conversation, like, share, subscribe. You know, we support networking here. If you are an aspiring writer, reach out, talk to her, see how she can give you some guidance as well. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER. 